this is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. And today in the Jewish Journal studio, David Makovsky, my friend David. So good to have you with us, David. Delighted to be with you, David. So, you know, there's no way I'm going to read your bio because then we would like squander 30 minutes. But I have to say, you're the Zingler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Nearest Policy and Director of the Project on the Middle East Peace Process. And you've written this new book called Be Strong and of Good Courage, which we covered in the Jewish Journal. I think the, uh, I felt something different in this book, something more emotional. You know, it's not the usual kind of think tank book. When I first saw it, be strong and of good courage, you know, chazak v'amatz. And it's not the usual title of a book by right. commentators like you and Dennis Ross. Right. That's right. We wanted, we wanted to inspire people. We feel that people have come to believe the problems are just too big. And we feel that people need to re reconnect with leaders who met the bar of history, who went on a journey to historic decisions. Often they went, underwent a transformation themselves before they made their decision. But we want to get in the kishkas of these people. Like, who are they? What makes them tick? And I should add that the, the book is really uh, about these four great, great leaders, David Ben-Gurion, Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Rabin, and Ariel Sharon, who embodied this right. trait of courage. Right. We're not saying that each of these leaders were, were angels or that we agreed with every decision they made. Our point was to really just focus on one decision per leader and how it changed history and, and really trace, you know, what got these leaders to, to do this moment. I, I was in Cape Cod and I happened to see, um, uh, reread um, John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage. And, you know, he recounts big Senate debates of leaders who took on their old political allies. And there's a quote from Walter Lippmann, the great columnist, who said uh, the leaders, they shouldn't just do what's popular, they should do what's right for the country. And these leaders did what's right for the country as they, as they understood it. And um, I just thought, like, a, a profiles in courage of Israel. Well, there's one you said yesterday that just blew me away at the, uh, the pop-up think tank at American Jewish University that, where you spoke. At the on, Washington Institute. At the Washington Institute, right. And the um, Ben-Gurion. Yeah. I mean, oh, the there's decision. No like them. There's no one like that. There's no one like Ben-Gurion. The decision, like the decision on an, an, a, a declaring the state of Israel yeah. was what, 5-4? 6-4. 6-4. I mean, it's unclear and, that they actually raised their fingers, but right. that was what the sentiment was. One guy. And he had every reason not to declare right. it, right? Exactly. He got bad news from Marshall. Right. You know, he got yeah. bad news. Oh, the mayor from King Abdullah in Jordan. Bad news from uh, Gush Etzion, where 120 people, they just found out during the meeting. And which killed. month was this? May 12th, 1948, two mm -hmm. days before the state is declared. This is the, the meeting, probably the biggest meeting in, in Zionist history, before or after. Yeah, after 2,000 years, right, it comes he, down to this moment. Right, and he was just getting bad news and bad news, and, and his own military people were saying, look, if, if Marshall is offering us three months... This could be good because we're not re ready. I mean, it's hard to believe. I know Americans will find this hard to believe, but 30 to 40 percent of the soldiers at that time didn't have a pistol. And so, he, you know, he, um, Ben-Gurion, though, felt something strongly about one idea. And it's very, it's very, it was 
very inspiring, I found, which is for Ben-Gurion, he said, look, the people who really want us to succeed the most are the Jews around the world. And there's immigrants, there's money to support us, and there's the weapons that we need, uh, the Czech weapons that they, they couldn't get in because of the British. And he said, if we accept the ceasefire, then the gates are still closed. And we can't tap into our greatest resources with the people around the world who want us to succeed. And the ceasefire will not be imposed evenly. Is someone going to impose it on, in Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Egypt? These are all countries that are about to attack us. Yeah, just for listeners, uh, Marshall was right. the one who had proposed the ceasefire, right. right? George Marshall, the Secretary of State, a great hero of the United States. He was more popular at the time than Harry Truman. It's called the Marshall Plan, not the Truman Plan, because he helped win World War II. And he's telling Charette, who was like the proto-foreign minister of the time, he said, look, I don't think you guys can win, and America's not going to bail you out, and we've got an embargo on you, like, and, and like we have on the Arabs. We have it on both sides. But you, you know, we don't think you could win, and this is bad. We think that we want the Arabs on our side in the Cold War against the Soviets, and we're against, I'm against the state. I think it should be a trusteeship. Now, you don't agree with me. I get that. But at least agree for three months to hold off. And uh, what Charette wanted to get really from Marshall was a sense that if he agreed with the three months, then Marshall would accept the state. At that time, it was the day before, I mean, it was unclear if Truman would accept or not. There was indications in both directions, actually. But Marshall would not give any commitments to Charette. And Charette came, and according to Ben-Gurion's biographers, he, you know, he, he went to Ben-Gurion's apartment the night before. There were no direct flights. They flew from Greece. There was a dark uh, airstrip uh, on the ground in the Tel Aviv area. And he said, you know, I think Marshall's right. We should wait on. And according to the, to the Ben-Gurion biographers, Ben-Gurion said, Moshe, give the full report. I want the, the people in the cabinet to hear everything you say. I'm only asking you one, one favor. Don't say the last sentence. I think he's right. Now, the Charette biographers don't have that sentence. And, you know, it could be because, look, the state was formed and no one wanted to be seen in retrospect as against. So it's unclear. But, but I think that Ben-Gurion, by dint of his analysis, his conviction, his, that he wasn't afraid of decision and his, his ability to commit his life to what he saw was truly consequential— and Jewish homelessness after 2,000 years. Yeah, it, I also felt a sense that let's do it now, strike while the iron's hot. And there's also a sense that he he exhibited so many human character traits at that moment, including cynicism. He didn't trust that the ceasefire would be implemented right. on the other side. Like I said, he didn't think the ceasefire would be applied evenly at all. And uh, also, you know, Ben-Gurion did have a sense of how people, you know— framed issues, which is if we don't declare a state at a time that the British are leaving, we'll have never a justification in the future. Correct. There'll always be excuses. If Now there's no excuse. And yes, are we militarily walking into a situation that is suboptimal? Uh, yes. Uh, but for Ben-Gurion, and this is the key sentence, I think for me, the risks of inaction were greater than the risks of action. And he felt that his national responsibility is 
don't kick the can to your successor. You have to decide. Right, and and that's something that we see in the four, that's right. you know, uh, heroes that you mentioned, yeah. and in the one on uh, I'm particularly interested in, Arik Sharon, and I know that your co-author Dennis Ross uh, kind of challenged Sharon on his decision to unilaterally disengage from Gaza as opposed to doing it as part of a deal. Well, I would say we were both in, uh, I mean, Dennis wasn't inside uh, the government at the time, and we both felt like we had, I, I said the phrase, you don't want to just take the keys and throw them over the fence and see who catches them. It might be Hamas. But the, look, to be fair to Sharon, he, the Palestinians, sadly, over and over again, it's all or nothing. And often in the Middle East, when it's all or nothing, it's nothing. Mm. And so if if the Palestinians would have said, we're willing to do Gaza disengagement with you as a standalone, then I think it would have been different. But they they insisted it be part of something much wider. And, um, and that was not doable. So Sharon had to make a decision, and he felt it wasn't tenable for Israel to send thousands and thousands of soldiers just to pr- protect a few settlers in, in the Gaza Strip. And uh, he made the decision. He was condemned in the Likud a lot, and then he broke off, started his own party called Kadima, and sadly got a stroke a month later. And it's interesting how it's always the tough guys who end up making these peace decisions, right? Yitzhak Rabin, who have to break their bones a year earlier, and then all of a sudden he's the one that has a breakthrough for Camp David, and Menachem Begin, who was like the original hardcore, you know, right-winger who makes peace with Right, Jimmy Carter. Right, no, you you put your finger on the right thing. The tough guys did it because I think for them, ultimately, the national interest, you know, wins out over their personal interests. And Begin, I could tell you, his sense of ideological attachments, he always subordinated to the idea of national unity. He believed there were times uh, in the in the Irgun where people said, "Let's start killing Haganah." people and he held up a sheet of paper and he said you could have a just cause but but the difference between justice and contamination of that cause is as thin as mm. this piece of paper and it was the same with the Altalena. That's and, why he didn't fight back. Right and that's why he didn't fight back in the Saison he didn't fight back at the Altalena and he believed that you could have all the ideological commitments but the national interest came first and in, in the final speech he gives after the passage of Camp David he said, look, we've been going to wars, you know, 48, 56, 67, 73. He said, if we can, this peace treaty holds, uh, it will end that cycle. And without Egypt, basically Syria can't go to war, And which was true. He was right on each point. Now, you could say, look, he was lucky he didn't have Menachem Begin in the opposition. That is true also. But at the end, he said, I feel this will be an enduring legacy. And, you know, people said, yeah, but what if Sadat was, would be killed? Now, Sadat was killed he and was. it held. It survived not just Sadat's assassination, two intifadas uh, and two wars in Lebanon, and even the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, briefly, as the leaders of Egypt. Um, and the, the peace endured, and, and Syria could not fight without Egypt. And so Israel lost 2,600 boys on the battleground in 73, and thank God, because of peace, it hasn't had to do that. And plus, if you look at the military GDP percentages from the 70s to now, it was in the 40s, basically, and now it's down to 4%. Mm-hmm. And that means that that differential 
which is over a hundred billion dollars a year. So it could put into roads, could put into clinics, schools, you know, all the quality of life issues that make uh, society a more middle class society. A cold peace is a lot better. Bingo. A lot better. Bingo. Than a, a hot state war. Of war. Right. Right. And then, um, so you have Ben Gurion. You got Rabin, you got Begin, you got Sharon. Now, uh, Begin's an interesting character because even in his last speech in the Knesset, he didn't really, you know, uh, offer a Palestinian state. It was a Palestinian state minus. I wonder if he was alive today, David, and he looking back on his major decision at Oslo, whether he would about think... about now Rabin. Rabin, Rabin. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I wonder. Look, we all wonder. It's hard to do counterfactual history. The, the thing I would say about Rabin, the greatness of the man, is his intellectual honesty. And I was a journalist at the time. I traveled around the world with Yitzhak Rabin. I knew with Yitzhak Rabin he could not lie. If you asked him the right question, he would give you a full printout answer. Mm. And uh, he felt that... Uh, that Israel needs to be a Jewish and democratic state. That was his belief. And I think that that led him to, you know, we can get into the details, would he agree to these terms or those terms, but what drove him was a belief, you know, people say when you're strong, you don't have to compromise because you're strong. And when you're weak, you can't afford to compromise. And he said, look, I don't accept this. He said, you know, our side won the Cold War. The United States is our patron. Our side won the, the Gulf War. The U.S. is our patriot. You know, the Soviet Union has just crumbled in front of our eyes. Our chance to cut a deal is best when we're at the top of our strength, mm -hmm. not at the bottom. And, um, and he was willing to pay, you know, he paid with his life. And would he have agreed on this term or that term? I, I also have my doubts on certain points. But there's no doubt what he did without with Oslo is that you had two national movements that were warring with each other. I would argue Israel was more forthcoming. Look at the partition plan. Israel was willing to accept in 1947 half a loaf, and the Palestinians thought the Zionists were illegitimate to accept any part of a loaf. Uh, so they, they wouldn't compromise. So I don't put the two in the same category, but he's the one who said it's been 100 years of two national movements fighting over the same sliver of land. There's just too much history and too little geography. And we've got to find a way to, to, to at least engage this other national movement. And I think that, and Rabin was willing to say, this is not a giveaway to the other side. We're not doing this uh, as nice guys. We're doing this because we want to be a Jewish country. We don't want to be a binational state. And um, and I think that was, you know, if there was a, a Middle Eastern Mount Rushmore, and Dennis, in my view, he's, he's right up there. Well, Dennis, I remember years ago, he said, uh, your, your co-author, Dennis Ross, said his only one of his regrets with Oslo is that they didn't enforce the anti-incitement clauses yeah. in the agreement, yes. which ended up kind of contaminating the... Population. That was look. This was this was definitely there were a lot of issues. Um, and look, at the end of the day, Israel above all has to be secure. I always say, if, if the lion lies down with the lamb, Israel's got to be the lion. It's it's a very tough neighborhood, the Middle East, mm -hmm. and Israel has to be strong. And there's no. That's why we wrote our book, "Be Strong and of Good Courage," because mm -hmm. we see a prerequisite to courage is strength. That if you're not strong in that region. 
you can't make compromises. It's precisely the strength that gives you the foundation. But what's beautiful now, and the public isn't going to read this in the Los Angeles Times or maybe they'll read it in the Jewish Journal, but in the, in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post, but Israel and the Palestinian security forces are working together every single day yeah, below what, the radar to keep Hamas terrorism out of the West Bank. It's really important. Right, right. Uh, I, I don't know anybody who's been more involved with this than you have been decade after decade. So you're the right person for me to throw this out. Yeah. Um, I always have, you know, when I put on my ultra cynical hat, uh, I wonder if there's a meta obstacle here that's kind of larger than life that can't be overcome, uh, which is that for a corrupt Palestinian leader might see the status quo as a real incentive to keep the status quo rather than to create a Palestinian state. One of the reasons being we've been telling him for 20 years that yeah. a Palestinian state will save Zionism. Yeah. And then why would they want to save Zionism? That's a good question. You know, I said this to Dory Gold once, and he yeah. said, brilliant. Yeah. And then, and also the occupation is kind of like, you know, it's, it's a knife that they could stab Israel with yeah. all the time. And it's also a kind of ATM machine, not as yeah. much recently. But there is a real incentive, I think, for corrupt leaders. I'm not talking about the Palestinian no, no, people no. who have to wait no. five hours to right. get to a wedding. Right, right, right. right. You know, I'm talking about the, the ones with the villas right. in, in Ramallah. Yeah. with the private jets. Hmm. I just wonder when I really get cynical, and the thing I like about asking you this question yeah. is, is you really know Mahmoud Abbas. Yeah. You imitate him. <laughs> I've seen you. You have to do it before you leave. But uh, uh, Let me put it this way. You, you're asking a great question. And, um, you, know, you know, even to ask a Palestinian, obviously they would be offended that they would ask them, but it's a fair question. It's fair. And um, I would say the following, and I go back to my baseball metaphors on this one, which is that we couldn't have a, a state tomorrow. That you couldn't hit the home run ball. You, you know, we've tried three times. Clinton 2000, Condoleezza Rice's effort 2007-8, the third effort I was a part of with Kerry 2013-14. Those were the three big efforts. Each time someone wanted to hit the home run ball, and uh, you know, and but when you try to swing for the fences, you strike out often. And my view is they're not ready, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and and I don't know if the Israel side is ready. What we have to do is just some solid singles, things that are more gradual, mm -hmm. in my view, that keep security first, but mm -hmm. focus on things that would show progress. But I, I'm look, whenever it's all or nothing in the Mideast, it's nothing. And whether you could say the Palestinians like it that way for the cynical reasons you just poured, you know, you just said, maybe uh, it's hard to know for sure, read their minds. But I just know that the Venn diagram between the positions on one side and the positions on the other do not sufficiently overlap. And we get attacked on the, at the right and the left, uh, both end zones, I would say, in mm -hmm. this football field. Because um, you know we're we're we are gradualists, and we believe that we need to get the publics back involved. Because mm -hmm. if it's only up to a few leaders, they could have all sorts of cynical calculations. Right. The publics have got to believe again. The publics are not going to believe what anybody says. Basically, in my view, they'll only believe what they see. What is what is done. 
And that's our real partner is them. You know what's really fascinating, David, is your book <clears throat> is very much about grand dramatic gestures. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, evacuating Gaza. I was there that summer. Yeah. It was as dramatic as it got. Yeah. The whole country yeah. was in this social civil war with yeah. uh, yellow, uh, orange ribbons and blue ribbons. That's right. And the moment of Menachem Begin, you know, receiving, um, you know, Sadat in Jerusalem is unbelievable. Yeah. And then you know, uh, uh, Rabin yeah. at uh, the famous, you know, White right. House ceremony. Right. The handshake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Ben-Gurion's declaration. And yet we're at a moment now where what I'm hearing is that it's not a moment for a grand gesture. So right. if we had a fifth hero here right. in your book that would yeah. represent someone who yeah. would do something today, right. it would not be a grand gesture. That's a very excellent observation that... We, and we put that out in the conclusion, we are not calling for, you know, snap of the finger kind of solutions. Uh, we want a more gradualist approach. But we think what is common to these four leaders and the fifth, you know, kind of leader that's needed, and there's still room for a paperback edition, uh, <laughs> whoever that leader is, is, in our view, is a sense that says, okay, the four people who took those big decisions they had a sense of national responsibility of country first, that I can't kick the can down the road for my children. You know, I can't just pass it on for another generation. Um, that's a mindset, in my view. And that's a mindset that we're missing. Why can't you kick the can for another generation? Because if you add all these settlements, uh, you know, going forward, it will close the door now for eternally for the future. And if you look at the, if you, in the context of the, the coma that yeah. the peace process has been in for the past three right. years, you right. can argue that making a big announcement like we're going to stop building outside of the blocks yeah. might be considered a kind of a major move. That would be, that's what we're calling for. Right. We're calling for a single. You know, we're calling for not the home run. And we're very specific. And I'll give you a number. Then the number I think will blow away a lot of people. 87% of the Israelis who live uh, beyond the green line, the green line being, for your listeners, I know you know this, uh, beyond the 60, you know, June 4th, 1967 lines, 87% of those people live within 8% of the West Bank close to Israeli urban areas, 87 in 8. The other 13% live outside the security barrier in 92% of the West Bank. That's about 104,000 people. You know, and I think it's clear to me, if you say, look, I want to strengthen the blocks, these clusters where the 87% live, uh, if you include Jerusalem, that, that includes uh, close to 700,000 people, and build that area up. And then you could always have land swaps for those areas. Up to 8%, you could probably do a, a land swap. But if you start doing what's been done in recent years, sadly, and bring, you know, fill in the areas outside the barrier. Going in the wrong direction. You're going in the wrong direction. You, you know, and it's, it's, it's basic what needs to happen, which is you know, when you're in a hole, stop digging. You know, don't, don't build in these areas that you're shutting doors. What you want to do is leave doors open. By the way, I want to be clear, David, so there's no misunderstanding. We don't just call on the Israelis to act. We want also Palestinians to do things, too. There should not be a situation that relatives of suicide bombers or perpetrators of violence get uh, major stipends, right. be, you know, because this one's in prison. 
What message does that send? We think both sides needs to take steps. And, you know, there's other things, too, which we could get into. But right, right. But I know that, uh, <clears throat> you know, um, one of the big issues of contention when Sharon did his uh, move was whether you should make it unilateral or not. He decided, like he said to, to Ross in your book, uh, that he can't depend on the other side. And I'm wondering... Uh, whether, because they're all, all all or nothing mindset. All or nothing. Maybe they can't deliver peace, or maybe they decided they're never going to sign a deal that's good for the Jews. Or who knows? It's assuming. Well, it could the be also. Theory. I mean, we've heard things. I don't know if it's accurate, but this gets back to your previous question that uh, relatives of Abu Mazen of, of Abbas have said to him. You know, uh, I don't know, was it a niece of his or something said to him, you cannot be the first Arab to sign away the right of return. Right. You know, you cannot give up, you know, this whole idea of right of return. Again, you know, the idea of refugees is no one live, wants one refugee to live in squalor. Let's be clear. But the idea is that refugees could live in the state of Palestine. Right. Or they go to third countries. But as Sari Nuseba said, it would be suicide for Israel to say they could go to Israel as well as Palestine. So according to this view is the fear of anything that whiffs of a compromise on this issue correct will be will write them up very poorly in the right. history and very, books and this is what they fear the most very difficult and especially when you haven't prepared the population right. exactly. for compromise on that but what I'm really curious I know you have a lot of sources one thing I did hear from somebody who was close to Sharon is that before he died of this unfortunate death with the heart attack is his plan was to do with the West Bank what yeah. he did in Gaza. Right. Is that consistent with some of yes. your sources? Yes, yeah, no, no doubt. He had it, he was it was called like the Hit Kansut or the and Omer tried to build on that, which I think he would have yielded some of the areas outside of the of the fence, outside of the barrier. Look, they he finishes took, the barrier and yeah, he look they took down four uh, settlements as part of the Gaza disengagement too because he wanted. To Correct. send a message. Plant that, a seed. Plant a seed. That this is, you know, oh, you think we just want to, because Gaza's a bone in our throat, so we just want to get rid of them. We have no more intentions. He was willing to go further than that. But I think what we're saying and what he said are consistent, which yeah. is within the barrier, Israel could bolster these areas. But why would you want to shut the door to a future compromise today? Uh, that will that will impact you, you know, for a long time to come. You know, and something else you said yesterday, because you know we're all talking here about whether there are those leaders in Israel, mm -hmm. like the ones in your book. Yeah. You know, Sharon said something that's very concerning. He said, you know, I, I wonder if we're, I'm the last generation. That's right. You know, the last generation of these leaders who who are not afraid to make big decisions, right? And then uh, it looks like. Bibi's not in that category, but Benny Gantz maybe. He he has a little more of that old world, right. old generation. Right. My my right. Yeah. No, you, look. First of all, what you said about Sharon is accurate. That Sharon said, "I'm of the founder generation, and we're not afraid to make historic decisions because we know how fragile the state is." But he said, "I'm worried that that my successors are just politicians." And they will only make political decisions that will guarantee their own personal s political survival. So that was the Sharon quote. Your your point uh, about uh, about Netanyahu and this, 
look, I think Netanyahu didn't start out that way, but I think he's became more enthralled with a base that was to his right. And, you know, can I prove it as something to do that he thinks the base will support him? Uh, survive these corruption allegations? I don't know. I can't read his mind, but I tend to think over time he he was he was he thought strategically about Iran. He thinks strategically about keeping Israel out of the civil war in Syria. He thinks strategically about outreach to diplomatic, uh, you know, to Arab states uh, below the table. And we at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy have written a lot about this kind of under-the-table outreach between Israel and Arab states. Uh, he, he thinks big about everything except, except for the Palestinian bingo. conflict. There he thinks like a yeah. politician yeah. who's like, this is a headache. This only causes me problems with my base. Just I want this just to go away. I want to just wake up and there's no problems. Everyone wants to wake up and there's no problems. But the problem is, is what made these leaders great was that they realized that they had a national responsibility to act. And if the risks of inaction would grow with time, then um, you're not doing yourself any favors by kicking the can down the road. I mean, what Dennis and I fear, here's our fear scenario, and we, 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 we pray we're wrong, of course. That goes like this. Then a few years from now, the Palestinians say, you know what? Forget it. We don't want the state. It's never going to happen. The Israelis will never let it happen. We give up. We're throwing in the towel. Instead, we want to vote in Israel. We want to vote as Israelis. Now, to uh, listeners in the Los Angeles Jewish community, this is going to sound far-fetched. But if you look at the polling, David, David, I mean, you see that young people talk about this one state. Now, Israel can't agree to it because, you know, Israel's got to be a, a Zionist country. That's its ethos and a, and a democratic country. But I fear the, the snowball effect in the U.S. when people say, what do you want? America's... That's what democracy is, one person, one vote. And this will be done as a tactic to isolate Israel mm -hmm. in a way that will make BDS look like child's play. That's my fear, and I hope I'm not the angry prophet. I'm not that usual type. Um, well, well, but I worry that this is coming around the corner. I, I think it's uh, precisely that fear that uh, instilled such courage in Begin and, and Sharon. And Rabin. And Rabin. I'm, I'm sorry, I meant Rabin. Yeah. You know, that's what they saw. That's what they saw. Uh, a, a real threat to right. the Zionist right. project. Right. And by the way, just for listeners who are not Zionists, it's not going to work, even if it isn't, because if you look at countries like Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, look at the blood that's gone there. The, in Syria, there's 600,000 dead. Lebanon had a civil war for 14 years. Iraq, horrible Sunni Shia violence. What you find is in the Middle East, the primordial loyalties of the people is not to a citizenship like we have in the U.S., that we're Americans, but we're ethnic. More important than they're Iraqi, they're Sunnis or Shia. And that's what animates them. So if you think by paper overing it and say, well, we'll get a new flag and we'll get a new soccer team, no, this conflict will turn bloody and inward. So the word one-state solution is not a solution. And by the way, be careful the way the word is used, because the settlers, when they see one state, they mean Israel controls everything. But when some of these progressives use the term one state, it means no Israel at all. So they both use the same phrase, but they mean very different things. 
In either event, uh, we don't think it's workable. Well, we're now on day four of the hearings for Prime Minister Netanyahu. Yeah. Um, and we're going to try to get this podcast podcast up in the next couple of days. So I have to talk about the mess <laughs> post the second election yeah, yeah. in Israel. And everybody's afraid of having to go to a third election. You spoke about this uh, yesterday. And right now it looks like we're in the middle of a stalemate uh, how do you see this? Is there a way that something can break the logjam so that Israel doesn't have to go to third election? Yeah. Well, that's the question. And I, it's, I'm always worried about predicting something when, you know, in a few days from now, like Lieberman's supposed to come out after Yom Kippur with some of his ideas. So, you know, we, we have to be a little humble. I mean, I think the, the two big kind of uh, questions is, you know, let's put it this way. Door number one is some form of a unity government. Within that, there are different configurations. And door number two is a narrow government. I think, in theory, everyone, it's like the one state almost, everyone uses the phrase unity because everyone wants unity. But unity under whose terms? And I think President Rivlin has got an interesting idea out there. And I don't know in the end if Netanyahu will, I mean, if it'll work. But look, each side's fantasy is that there is a rebellion in the other camp, mm-hmm. right? That uh, Likud would like to see Gantz split from Lapid. And um, Gantz would, would like, like to, to see a rebellion and intifada within the Likud. Uh, we saw little seeds uh, maybe with Gidon Saar, but it, it's not enough. Look, the, what people don't know is the DNA of Khairut and and Likud is four leaders in 70 years, while the Labor Party in Israel said maybe four leaders in four years. So this idea of the, the, the disloyalty to the leader is a big deal. So I don't see either of these scenarios coming out. In America, they'd say, hey, hey, buddy, you've had two chances to put together 61, and you can't get to the magic number. You need 61 seats in the 120-member Knesset. So the Rivlin compromise goes like this. And that's probably, it's, it's the only creative idea that I've seen out there, although it's got holes. The, the creative idea is to say, all right, rotation is going to be based on 50-50, two years Likud, and, uh, two years Netanyahu, and two years Gantz. But we're going to amend the law of incapacitation, where Sharon was incapacitated because he had a stroke, and, and Ulmert becomes the leader. Uh, he had 100 days before new elections. So we're going to amend that. We're going to take out the 100 days. And once you are indicted, and the assumption is he will be indicted, we don't know if it's the end of October, if it's the end of the year, you could still be called prime minister. You could still live in the house. You could have a business card. But the authority of the office goes to Gantz. Now, if if your name is cleared within your two years, the first two years, you're fully back. But until you're cleared, your name is cleared, Gantz has the authority, not you. And then the second two years is is all Gantz. Why does he go to Netanyahu first and not second? Well, clearly Netanyahu wants to go first because under the law, the only position you're allowed to stay in office if you're indicted is prime minister under the theory that if you fall, the whole government falls. So the, the, the the law thought that was too much. But we think Bibi goes first because even though 57-55 with Lieberman holding the, uh, the other, uh, you know, the, the remainder, um, you know, we think that uh, the, the Arab parties say they won't join you. 
So it's really not 57-55, it's 55-44. So we think it's right that he gets to go first, but with a lot of caveats. Now, I thought that was interesting. The second half of it, though, is a little mushy in my view, which is to say it's not just who's in this unity government. And so Rivlin said, look, let's say each side gets 16 seats. So it's a lot of cabinet seats. But within those 16, each block makes their own decisions. So if Likud wants to bring in, you know, ultra-Orthodox, ultra-orthodox and Yamina, you know, the right-wing party, that's up to them. You don't have to have appointed them. You don't, you don't know. But so in a certain way, it, it takes the risk away from Gantz, who's facing a lot of opposition um, about the ultra-Orthodox. The problem of it is, is how is legislation going to work if they are all part of a government? Over 100 people in a government, mm-hmm. is, how is, is that workable exactly? So it's, it's – um, but I think the Rivlin compromise is something – Is one option. Is option. That's door number one. Door number two is Gantz going to Lieberman and saying, I tried. You know, we, we all wanted unity, but BB's unreasonable. So um, now Gantz and Lieberman is still short of 61. Well, I was just about to get to that point. So I think that he would say to Avigdor, listen, we got one or two options here. And you're not going to like either of them. It goes like this. We're 44. You're eight. We're, that's 52. If we added Shas, that's nine. That's it, 61. That's 61. We get to the magic number. Now, you don't like the ultra-Orthodox because of the draft laws, but you know the Shas guys basically do go to the army. And you also know that on Shabbat, they might go to the synagogue in the morning, but like a lot of Sephardic Jews, they go to soccer games in the afternoon. They have the two Haredi parties, the ultra-Orthodox party, they're the least objectionable. They're Haredi light. Haredi light. Beautiful. I love it. <laughs> so swallow. Swallow your pride and, and let them come in. Option two goes like... Okay, you don't want the Haredim in, you don't want Shas in, fine. Then we're at 52. And then we ask the Arab state, the Arab parties of 13, to do what they did for Rabin in 1992 to 95, which is to be a safety net outside the government. So whenever there's a call of no no confidence, they'll support the government. Right, Right. and what American listeners don't always appreciate is that America's a presidential system. Unless you're impeached, and I don't want to get into that whole thing, you got it for four years. In Israel... Every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, <laughs> they think it's a God-given right to hold the prime minister by the neck, by the throat. And so you need those... You need to have... 61. You need your 61. So 52 plus 13 is 65. And the, the problem with scenario two, in my view, is, is that the Likud will cry bloody murder. And they'll say, Lieberman, okay, so you're not sitting with these parties who call for our destruction, but your, your government is very dependent on it. That's why I think the Shas option is a cleaner option in that regard. I want to be clear that I am not arguing for, you know, the Arabs should not be part of a government in Israel. Right now, it's largely the, the call of the Arab parties themselves who don't want to be complicit. And you have to understand that and respect that. You know, they're going to have to vote on sometimes military operations against mm-hmm. fellow Arabs. Mm-hmm. So it's not that Israel is trying to keep them out. It's that uh, the Zionist parties are trying to keep them out as much as they, they are averse to joining. And, and, and that needs to be respected. Wow. So 
uh, the thing you said about Chas, I've I've read everything I think on this, and that's the first time I heard it, and that's a real innovation. We'll, we'll and, see. And we'll I see what happens. I always am worried about making predictions in the short term because people will call the predictions back to you, and we'll see what Lieberman says. He's the kingmaker, so he if it, if it's door number two of a non-unity, he's the guy who will ultimately have to make that call. And you know, David, just for, before we wrap up, I was thinking about your career and you spent so many years on these conflicts. And you know, year after year, you've written a few books and you know, how do you feel like after so many years and you know, a lack of progress specifically on the <coughs> Palestinian issue, uh, is that I mean, Look, I would say this. I'm, I mean, you you introduced me as the director of the project on the Middle East peace process. It's really the director of the project on Arab-Israel relations is my title, and the you could call it under the table stuff between Israel and the Gulf Arabs, Israel and Jordan, Israel and Egypt. Those ties are better than ever, and Israel grows from strength to strength. U.S. relations have been strong under different presidents. I, I look at how Israel's grown, and I see the GDP per capita has passed Japan and now France. Mm. And so, <coughs> in my view, I know that people will say, well, we haven't solved the problem, so you must feel terrible. And my view is, I think it would be much worse if everything would, you know, would just go down to hell, hell in a handbasket. And um, and uh, the radicalization would be the order of the day. So I would. You're seeing the glasses half full I as well. I think the glass. You're is seeing half the full, full glass. Yeah, the gradualism is preferable in my view, uh, and I just think we need to uh, look at the big picture. And look, writing this book, uh, David, I really believe, and I hope the you know the listeners who who are listening to us realize that some people said, "Oh, I know Israel. I don't need any books." But I'm telling you, if you read these four inspirational stories of these four heroic figures, you will be more connected. You will know more. Your, 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 your understanding will deepen. And it's a great human story of four people and their journeys. And uh, like I said, if you care about you know, the U.S.-Israel relationship and you care about peace, you know, I hope that this, that this book will be help you on your journey as well, because these four people were extraordinary figures uh, in this era, and uh, I just feel people need to know more about their journey to decision. Do you, do you see uh, hope for uh, that Israel will create these kind of leaders in the future? Yeah. Well, it's, 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 you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, would there have been a Churchill without a World War II? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need extraordinary challenges. We at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy try to track all these different Middle East crises. It's really hard because, but there's crises all the time. But somehow in crises, sometimes people do emerge. And I have a certain faith if crises kind of uh, help produce these four great people, that uh, there will be others as well. Yeah, what I find fascinating is that uh, the, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is really unique. Yes. And it's unlike any other. Right. You know, Yossi Klein Alevi says, you know, uh, leaving the West Bank is an existential threat to Israel. Staying in the West Bank is an existential threat to Israel. Yes. I've never seen it described the dilemma so well as that. It's not a typical kind of problem. Yesterday you mentioned, you know, you can't solve it, but managing it is too 
dangerous either. You have to shrink it. That's it. Micha Goodman and I have a very, we see it the same way. We use the same yeah. words even. I love, I love yeah. his piece on yeah, that. Yeah, no, we both shrinking. think the same thing, which is you can't solve it, but managing it is insufficient because of the risks. So you have to shrink the conflict. And it, I think those things can be done. Right. And then we're living at a time of big dramatic moments, right? Like right. the Iran, right. you know, existential threat with Iran and making Israel a big power player around the world and reconnecting with connecting with Saudi Arabia. Those are all big and dramatic. Right. Shrinking is not big and dramatic. And yet it's exactly what's called for. That's what's called for. Yeah. Exactly there's, right. there's there's drama in the absence of drama. Right there yeah. you go. <laughs> well said. I wish I would have used that phrase. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, we're so glad you, you anytime you, you came I'm in happy. here, David. Thank you for having me. I'm very and I want to wish your listeners a healthy, happy New Year. Uh, it should be a year of peace uh, and a year of uh, meaning and fulfillment to all your listeners. Amen. Amen. Thank you again. Delighted.